0: For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away.
1: Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 51st episode of Working with the Word. Today, we are addressing another text for one of our Difficult Passages episodes. If you are able to follow along in the Bible, we encourage you to do so by queuing up 1 Corinthians chapter 13, particularly verses 8 through verse 13. If circumstances prevent you from getting the text in front of you at the moment, we hope you will pay attention to what we are reading and the main questions or ideas we are trying to answer in this episode. We want to start off by just introducing the question from our listener, J.D., something we teased about in our previous episode as we were closing that out and wanting to address some of the things that J.D. wrote to us. J.D. has reached out to us and has sent us a little bit more of a detailed question to flesh out some thoughts of some things that have been going on in his mind relating to this text in 1 Corinthians 13. So we want to read J.D.'s statement to us and then mainly talk about the questions we're going to be looking to answer today. So this is the message from J.D., the latter portions of 1 Corinthians discuss the role of spiritual gifts in a broader discussion of church unity. 1 Corinthians 13 really sheds light on the primacy of love among spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13.8 appears to indicate miraculous spiritual gifts will cease, unlike love. And in 1 Corinthians thirteen verse ten, it connects the cessation with when the perfect comes. I've heard preachers connect the cessation of miraculous spiritual gifts with the completion of the New Testament writings in the late first century. Others attribute the cessation to the death of the apostles and first generation of the church. But both of these explanations seem, at least to me, to be exegesis, this idea of reading into the text, rather than exegesis, the idea of drawing out of the text. I'll pause JD's question for a moment or his message for a moment to say that Emerson and I have heard... Similar conclusions being made from this passage as well. So this is a similar idea or a familiar idea to something that we know. And so the main questions that J.D. sends in is, what then is this idea of when the perfect comes that's mentioned in verse 10? Is this something else? How would those answers help us to understand the latter part of the verse when the partial will pass away? And how does that contribute to the greater unity message of 1 Corinthians? We want to appreciate, once again, the fact that J.D. has written to us and for addressing and acknowledging some questions within this text and trying to understand this better, just as we are all looking to do, particularly in these difficult passage episodes. Thank you, J.D., for writing to us. And I know that there have been others as well. If you have questions that you would like for us to try to answer, you can always reach out to us on workingwiththeword.podcast on Instagram or find us on Facebook or Twitter. or Send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. We'll remind everyone of that towards the end of our episode as well. As we're thinking about this episode today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, particularly this idea of what does this phrase mean, when the perfect comes, that's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 10, here are some things that we are not and are going to talk about in today's episode. Today's episode, we want to do our best to avoid going down the rabbit hole of trying to define spiritual gifts and what all these individual spiritual gifts are you've got speaking in tongues or prophecy or healing or the power of flight well maybe i think that last one's something we just kind of assume <laughs> or make up but we want to avoid going down all of that and what was that and what did that look like in the first century the topic of spiritual gifts is definitely relevant and that will play into some things particularly as we consider the context of mostly looking around not just in chapter 13 of these verses but also a little bit in chapter 12 and chapter 14 as well. J.D.'s original question that was sent to us had more to do with the idea of this passage as it sometimes relates to the canon as a phrase that he used. And so as we started working on this, we kind of went in with that mindset about trying to address that particular subject and maybe more focusing on that specific question of what is the perfect or what does it mean when when the perfect comes. So other parts of the question we may not get to, J.D., will have to be either for another time or something that just won't be related to this particular episode. And as we're talking about things related to the canon, if that's a unfamiliar term to you, we want to provide a definition for that. When we talk about the canon of Scripture, if you were to Google that, you would see something like a collection or list of sacred books accepted as genuine. Now, you might think that's not a great definition of the canon, and you can start your own podcast and talk about the history and what is the canon or what isn't the canon. Really, we're not getting into that particular background, but we will be talking about that idea a little bit of there are some things that we accept as far as books of the Bible as genuine, and why do we accept those things, and why do we say sometime around the end of the first century, similar to what we saw in J.D.'s question, yeah, it did seem that God's revelation was completed. And that's really what we want to focus on in this idea, looking at God's revelation being completed, this idea of when the perfect comes. Something that Emerson talked about all the way back in episode chapter 4 that he brought up was this idea of as you get into a text, it could be helpful to go ahead and try to lay out all of your presuppositions, things you already have in mind about a text before you get there. That. It's so already somewhat stated in J.D.'s question, some things that we've heard about this text, preachers or teachers making these conclusions. Maybe we've had similar conclusions about you know, miraculous spiritual gifts ceasing when the apostles died or whenever John put the last dot on the book of Revelation or something like that. And so these are some of our presuppositions related to this particular text. We want to make sure we get out at the front here before we talk a little bit more specifically and actually read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 through 13. I know you're probably thinking, man, it's been seven minutes and they haven't even gotten to the text yet. I (laughs) thought we were going to be talking about this. And I promise we will. We wanted to take some time to introduce the question and do some of these things. Our presuppositions about this text, these are things that Emerson and I agree with related to this. The idea of miraculous spiritual gifts being performed by men, we do believe that those have ceased things like tongue speaking, things like people performing acts of healing, or people raising other people from the dead. Those things being done by men have ceased. That's what we understand as a whole. As well as this idea of upon the conclusion of the book of Revelation, we have received the completed revelation of God. That includes both the Old and New Testaments, And what we mean by that is not necessarily, you know, the moment that John put the final period in the last sentence of Revelation, someone was in the middle of performing a miraculous healing, and then just all of a sudden it stopped. I don't really mean it that way, but that is leading us down that rabbit hole we're trying to avoid right now, is spiritual gifts, and what did that look like in the first century? We're focusing more upon this question, and that's going to help us to see, okay, what are you talking about? What is this question? The question of, what is when the perfect comes, and how does 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13, particular, address this idea? So, after eight and a half minutes, let's actually read the text and let's see the main text that we're talking about. Listen along or follow along. Emerson, read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 8 through 13.
0: But before I do that, um, I just want to say one thing about JD's question. I think it's a very relatable question from a personal level, because I, I've often felt like, many times particularly related to spiritual gifts, we do maybe have a tendency to try to find passages that will support a position without actually looking at what the text says. And so from that angle, I think this is a very relatable question. Yeah, We want to be very careful that we're not just cherry-picking verses, one of the statements that we used very early on in our podcast was, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Mm -hmm. And all that means is we have to be very careful not to just cut and paste verses to try to support something we already believe. And our hope is that today we're not doing that. We're actually looking into the text and its context to see if if this is really what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13. Right. So 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible today. It says, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's start with some really quick observations. What are some of your first observations, Jeff?
1: There's definitely something in here of a temporary versus a longer lasting event. You know, He, he uses language in verse 8, pass away, cease. But he talks about in verse 8 as well, love never ends. And so there's obviously something going on as far as related to time that I think that that stands out to me as far as Something is gonna end. Now we'll maybe want to try to figure out when will that end and how do we understand that to say we know that these things would end. But I think that's what we're gonna be getting into. But we can see that topic is at least addressed from some of that. What about you, Emerson? Just
0: that there is so much like going on before this <laughs> <laughs> that if we were just to like take these, I don't know, six verses or so and just take them out and paste them on the wall somewhere, you would be scratching your head thinking, okay, what does love have to do with gifts at all, and prophecy and tongue speaking? And and so there's a lot that we have to understand leading up into this. That's really the first thing that I notice is that this really makes no sense without understanding it with chapter 12 and
1: 14. Somewhat ironically, and I'll myself and my family under this irony as well, we do actually cut and paste verse 4 through the beginning of verse 8 and stick it on walls a lot of times in our house. I true. think we have one of those on our uh, pantry, or maybe it's in our bathroom or something that ha- talks about well, the different things loves are, but it's very true. There is something going on, not just all of a sudden you fall into verse 8. Paul did not begin this letter here. I mean, there's lots of chapters before and even chapters after this Like you mentioned, there's a context that's here in chapter 12 through chapter 14. In chapter 12, verse 1, Paul starts this section by saying, now concerning spiritual gifts. He does this a couple other times in the letter, where he'll say concerning this or that, either as he will bring up issues on his own, or maybe in response to some questions or false teachings that could have been going on, some misapplications of things are happening in that Section of Corinth. So, what's the bigger context, not necessarily as the whole book, but as far as these three chapters 12, 13, and 14? What's going on here in these chapters?
0: Yeah, I think we really have to wrap our minds around that question before we even get to talking about the fulfillment of Scripture or what the perfect is or anything like that. What's he really talking about here? So, here's a really quick summary of chapters 12, 13, and 14 and kind of the flow of thought. So as you mentioned, in chapter 12, he brings up for the first time these miraculous spiritual gifts. And chapter 12 kind of highlights the problem that these Corinthians were having, and they were apparently using these gifts to exalt self versus help the body. And so he spends chapter 12 talking about that there is one source: God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of these gifts, they have one source. And they're all to be used for one purpose, and that is because you're a part of one body. And so he emphasizes that, that picture of the human body to emphasize the role that each of these varieties of gifts have. And so the source of the gifts is God for the building up of the body, but apparently they were elevating tongue speaking especially. And we can see a little bit of that in chapter 14 hinted, but I'll also mention that there are two lists of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. And in both of those lists, tongue speaking is last, kind of reversing the way the Corinthians were thinking. So that leads him to chapter 13, where he begins talking about the greatest gift of all is love. If I have all of these gifts, but do not have love, he says, I am nothing. Love is the greatest gifts. And so we see in chapter 13, That he focuses on the fact that these miraculous gifts were not intended to last forever, but love is. And the point I think he's getting at is when those temporary gifts pass away, what real gift will you have? Because if you focus so much on elevating self through these miraculous spiritual gifts, when those things dissipate, you're going to be left a bunch of selfish people. And so love is really the gift that you need to be seeking. He goes on in chapter 14 to talk about how you need to pursue love, but while we have these temporary gifts, you need to continue to seek the greater gifts, which in, he says, is prophecy. So chapter 12 is the problem. Chapter 13 is the solution. You learn to love each other. And then in 14, he talks about the implementation of that solution. While these gifts last, you need to use these gifts to edify the body, build each other up. Don't just Elevate yourself, don't speak out of turn, don't be disorderly, but use these gifts to be orderly, to build up the body of Christ. So he gives kind of some specific rules to help with that.
1: So at this point, the gifts have not ceased. He's writing about a time that they will cease, but Paul doesn't say at this section, hey, stop using gifts. He's talking more about stop using them in improper ways. And one of the best things to help with that is to use love appropriately, not just within a husband and wife relationship, but as members of the local body, use love to help you implement these gifts for God's glory, again, in that proper way, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, a lot of times we read, you know, this passage on love, as you mentioned, verses four through seven, you know, we, we relate it to marriage, and certainly it applies to marriage but the initial application was to church members getting along and to how local congregations function and obviously it applies to every relationship but there's a specific context to the love that they need to have for each other as fellow members of the body and so how would they use these these gifts that they had at the time with love so that brings us to kind of the specific text we're at today just kind of verse by verse breaking it down In verse 8, love never fails. And that's the point he's been making in this chapter. You need to pursue this greater, excellent gift of love. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So he brings up these three gifts that kind of represent the whole system, if you will. Mm -hmm. He doesn't mention every single gift that he's mentioned before, but these three gifts kind of represent all of them together. And if we look at all of Scripture and how these gifts were used, we see that God used these gifts, prophecy and tongues and miraculous knowledge, to communicate new truth and to confirm new truth in, in those kind of two mm-hmm. twin ways working together, true of the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Yeah. In the Old Testament, you can think of like Prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, obviously they were using gifts of prophecy. In the New Testament, think about the book of Acts and how these gifts were used, say, in Acts chapter 2, when the apostles were speaking in tongues and they were speaking the gospel for the first time in a very open, public way, preaching about Jesus crucified and resurrected and exalted. And so these gifts are used to communicate new truth and confirm new truth. And so however we land on this question of when the perfect comes, verse 8 clearly says that these gifts would end. And I think that's one kind of stake in the ground we need to, we need to plant, yeah. is verse 8 clearly says that these are temporary things. Now mm-hmm. the question is, when would they end, yeah. right? <laughs> uh-huh. But it, Paul clearly says these gifts will end at some, at some time. And so in verse 9, he says, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So you've got kind of a contrast. In verse 9, you've got two partial things. You have partial knowledge and partial prophecy, kind of this idea of bits and pieces. And then in verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And so verse 10 uses that word, the perfect, at least in the American Standard. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what we're talking about right here. What is that thing? And it's helpful to define that word perfect, because when we, in English, use the word perfect, a lot of times we think of something that is flawless or sinless.
1: An A plus, something like that. Yeah,
0: (laughs) right. hundred percent, right? Yeah. But... The word perfect in the Bible most often means something that is complete and something that has reached its full potential or reached its goal. And so that's really the idea here is that something that was once partial has now reached its full, complete goal. And we'll talk in a minute about how that relates to what we think of as the the revelation of God.
1: So we understand that the Corinthians would have read this, and again, we want to make sure that in this interpretation part, we're not reading into how we would expect them to read it, but how would they have expected to see this. And from what Paul is writing to them, they have some idea in their mind of the fact that there is a perfect, and that these gifts are not going to last forever. Whether they knew that that was going to be Roughly thirty to fifty years from now, when John finishes Revelation, or when you know that first generation dies out, as sometimes we talk about, I don't know if they thought of that that way, but they at least had the idea in their mind of what we're doing with tongue speaking isn't going to last forever, right? And that's helpful, I think, for us to remember is that they knew something about the idea of the cessation, but also the idea of a perfect or a complete revelation is going to be concluded or finished or is coming as well.
0: Yeah, or at least that's the that's the thing that he's trying to drive into their thinking.
1: I guess that's true, that Paul is trying to get them to understand that.
0: Right, the things that they're focusing on, not really the completion, that these things are just temporary. And I'll mention that there are a couple of, of different interpretations of what the perfect refers to, mm-hmm. One would be the one that we've referred to already—that it's the the completed revelation of God, maybe the the New Testament canon. Again, we'll talk about that in a minute. The other is the idea of of, of heaven, of being in the perfect state of of heaven. In verse twelve, he mentions you know seeing face to face, and some people look at that as okay, we're going to see Jesus face to face in heaven. But but I would suggest on that second one, although it. It may make some sense in verse 12, really what he's talking about is not so much us being made perfect in heaven, but something that is outside of us that is completed, something that these miraculous gifts, prophecy, tongue speaking, are pointing to, pointing forward to. Mm -hmm. And so I think in the context here, because these gifts, God often used them for communicating and confirming new revelation I think that kind of determines what the perfect is. And so what's what's partial, well the the communication of God, God revealing himself to mankind about Jesus and about the gospel. Now, he used those gifts to communicate the gospel. That's what's partial then, but a time is coming when that's going to be made complete or at least more complete than it is in their present day. Right. And so I think that that kind of lays the context out to see what exactly this perfect may be.
1: Mm-hmm. And so we have these concluding verses where he talks about kind of that idea of the partial to the complete. You have immaturity to maturity. You have this idea of a dim vision. You're looking at a dim mirror. Maybe it, you know, I kind of get in my mind of a smudge mirror, too. I can clearly see something right in front of me. I'm not looking at a grainy photo. I'm looking at the actual object or the actual piece there. And that's the idea of the perfect completed revelation of, and we're not saying that God was hiding information from them at that time, but they just didn't necessarily have all of the information at that time. Am I stating that well? Does that sound Mm -hmm. right? I think so. And so that's really the point that we're getting to is when we're talking about perfect or imperfect as far as the revelation of God's will in this day and time, we're not saying that God didn't know all the things or even that all the things that were revealed were like wrong until some later time, you know, things would be better understood, you know, thousand years later, biblical scholars would correctly interpret what was originally trying to be said or something like that. That's not what we mean. We just mean that it will all be available. So that really leads into this idea, I think, of how does this apply to the canon of scripture? Or how does this apply to the completion of the New Testament? Does Is that maybe an appropriate point? To just take verse 10 on its own and just say, this verse says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away, and that's it. It can be confusing to say, well, how are we getting to that conclusion? Are we really just reading that idea into the text? But if the purpose of these gifts was to communicate or confirm revelation from God, then the perfect would be the completed revelation. And so we've talked about the idea of rephrasing this idea of closing the canon. You know, that's a debate or question of when was the canon completed? You, know, you have these things you look back to in church history of church fathers do include or don't include certain books on their list, or a group of you know some church council got together and they voted upon these books or those books. Rather than thinking about that idea, using that phrase of closing the canon, we want to think more about here uh, this phrase of the perfect being when God completed his revelation of the gospel. And that is independent of how we voted yay or nay upon certain things. When God completed his revelation, he completed his revelation. And so while the closing of the canon, again, is somewhat arbitrary, miraculous gifts didn't cease the minute John wrote that final amen of, of Revelation 21. Was that a immediate thing? Was that a a dying off thing? But we want to think about what's important for us and understand, okay, moving from interpretation, seeing that they understood this would have been a temporary thing. What does all that mean for us and how can we understand that properly? We understand that we have the whole revelation of God contained within the written word. We have all 66 books of the Bible to read and to understand as we've had them for now thousands of years. But in the first century, that revelation would have included spoken and written word. And again, based on how we explained our presuppositions earlier, not believing that God is still speaking new revelation today, that's kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around because I don't live in a world like that. But that would have been what the world would have been like there in this day and time when Paul writes this through the Corinthians.
0: Yeah, so this idea of, of God's revelation is... It, 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 this is going to be weird to, for me to say, but God's revelation is a little bit bigger than what we think of as the Canon of Scripture because there, for instance, there are books in the in, that are not included in our Bibles that the Apostle Paul wrote. and we know that because Colossians chapter 4, Paul mentions a letter to the Laodiceans. You know I think that that book was probably just as much inspired as the book of Colossians itself. And Paul expected them to share their letters back and forth. But we don't have, you know, a letter to the Laodiceans in our book. And so my my point that I'm making is that we think about God's revelation. For the first century, God revealed himself through the spoken word of the apostles and the prophets. And some of those sermons that they preached probably weren't written down. But they were spoken orally and just as much inspired. But then they also wrote letters, and those letters have been preserved for us, many of them, for our learning today through God's providence. Again, we're not going to get into the history of the canon and how they became accepted, but they were recognized as as being authoritative because they came from God's prophets. But for us, living in a time without living day, modern day prophets, God's revelation is the, the written word for us. And so that's why we focus so much on the Word, is because that is how we think of today God's revelation, because that's the way God communicates to us today.
1: So to try to, to summarize, before we get into some application and challenges, to summarize, again, J.D.'s question of what is the perfect, we're defining that as the completed revelation of God's word, completed revelation of the gospel. We're trying to not really use like, that's when the canon closed or that's when the last person with spiritual gifts died. We're gonna go with that definition of we have God's completed revelation. And when that came, we see that that's when the partial would be done away with. That's our best shot at that particular question over this past 30 minutes. JD, we hope that was helpful. We do want to make some applications here in a second as well, but we do want to say that if you're listening and you think, "Wow, you guys are way off on that," or <laughs> you know, you may be thinking, "It sounds like you came to the same conclusion." Like, did you really change anything? I don't necessarily sure we changed thoughts of anything, and I don't think that's a bad thing. But hopefully, that gives our understanding of this and what we're what we've come away with from our study of this passage. If you still have things that you're have questions about, whether that's UJD who's listening right now, or whether that's other people, we encourage you to do further study on your own. Write to us and let us know what you're finding in your study, too. We'd love to hear from you, and if we are way off base, let us know. We want to be able to, to make corrections if we have to, to say what's really true and right from what's going on in here. But let's try to move into that final stage of Bible study and make some applications. So what are some applications to make from this text that we've talked about today?
0: the first one is about love because in chapter 13 and thir- and 12 and 14 that's really what he's getting at the centerpiece here is about love love is patient love is kind it is not jealous does not brag it is not arrogant etc cetera, etc cetera. so if this perfect is the completed revelation of the good news of Jesus Christ god has handed it down to mankind and for us, that means we have it written down in the words of the Bible, then having the Bible does us no good without love. Right. And if, if we have in our hands all 66 books, the ones that God has approved of, and, and we don't exercise our faith, we don't love others as we should, then this book is doing us no good. And so we need to choose to love those around us, love our brethren in Christ, if you're a member of a local congregation, your responsibility is to love them, to not exalt yourself over them, to not look at it like, what are you going to do for me? Or what is this group doing for me? What, what are you doing for them? That's the attitude of love. And without love, you're nothing. Even if you can quote all 66 books of the Bible verbatim, without love, you would be nothing.
1: So something else we want to do before we close is we do want to Try to look at some other texts as well. Does Scripture jive with other Scripture? So we want to think about first of all Jude three. Jude verse three says, "Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints." The idea we're going to connect with related to what we've talked about today is that the faith was not expected to evolve or change over the next hundred or 2,000, or 10,000 years, once it has been delivered, it's complete. It's finished. As well as maybe a, a weightier passage related to this, Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2. In the English Standard Version, it reads, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So, by the words of Jesus and his apostles, who have been given authority by him, we might ask the question of what other message could we possibly be looking for? Since Jesus has come, no one has been given a message or source that would rival his message. So, unless there are true apostles today, which I don't believe that there are, we can confidently say that God has completed the revelation of the gospel that we have.
0: I think one of the connections between Hebrews 1 and 1 Corinthians 13 may not necessarily be a real strong connection, but maybe just kind of to illustrate the point. 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about knowing in part and prophesying in part. And that was true of of all of prophecy, that all prophecy was given just kind of in piecemeal. You read the Old Testament. Isaiah revealed a a portion of the new kingdom and the the suffering servant and the Messiah. Uh, Ezekiel revealed a little bit about the the Messianic temple, um, and, and other prophets, we could go on and on, they, they revealed just little bits and pieces of it. And you also have that sense here in Hebrews chapter 1, more strongly referred to, that in verse 1, it many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke in these different forms and these different pieces, but when Jesus came, it was the final message of God, and Jesus was kind of the magnet that drew all of these pieces together, and they kind of came together one perfect picture. So that's just one connection between these two passages that maybe illustrates what we're talking about as we explain that. So we went in with a challenge today. If you have a difficult passage you would like us to, again, just do our best to dig into, please write to us. One of the great advantages of for myself, of dealing with these hard passages is it always challenges me to go back to the text, to circle back. You know, even if I've studied this passage 15 times, it always challenges me to re-question, to rethink, to go back to the text, and that's always a good thing. That's what working with the Word is really all about.
1: Amen. Thank you for listening to Working with the Word today. Our next episode, we'll get back into our series on the Gospel of John and looking at some things as we're going through that inductive study of John's Gospel. If you've been enjoying the program, you can help us out by rating and reviewing the show and by sharing it with some other friends or someone in your congregation. We'd really appreciate the support in that way. As always, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word. You can find us on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. If you have your own difficult passage or just a suggestion, comments, criticisms, whatever, you can always send them to us at workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com.
0: So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.
1: To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.